my brothers and sisters. The final section of Mark's Gospel record is a narrative of Jesus' suffering, death and resurrection, the last few days of his life. The plot by the leading priests and teachers of the law to kill Jesus now comes to a climax. As you all know, these passages give us immense exhortation to follow Jesus through what he went through. And so I've picked out just some of the events in Mark chapter 14 for us to reflect on today. So it would be worth keeping this chapter open so that you can follow along. And I'll be reading from the NIV, just in case you're wondering. No one else may know about them, but some of our most embarrassing and regrettable moments would have to be times when we are alone, in secret or trying to hide. The chief priests and teachers of the law were the same in Jesus' day. Of all the regrettable moments they had in the past, they were about to top it off by arresting and killing the Son of God. Take note how it happened. That first verse in chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly secretly, and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Then later on, when they had done the deal with Judas, it was uh, the middle of the night, in the dark, when they went out as a mob to arrest Jesus. There are a couple of warning bells for us here. If we find ourselves doing anything secretly, slyly, or by stealth, or in a hidden place under the cover of darkness, or even in a room with the door shut, take a conscience check. All too often our secret things are sinful things, and even if we are doing them for the good of the people, we are probably going about them the wrong way. Like Jesus, let's make sure our words and actions are honest, out in the open, and done with a clean conscience. The story of Jesus being anointed by a woman in Bethany sets the scene for events to follow. Luke's account is significantly different and might be a different event. This incident that we read took place in Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem on the lower eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, where Jesus apparently stayed when he was in Judea. The home belonged to Simon, a former leper. Lepers were isolated from society. Perhaps he had been healed by Jesus. Some were indignant over what they considered a waste of expensive perfume, said to have been worth a year's wages for the average worker. Greek 300 denarii. A denarius was the equivalent to a labourer's full day's wage. This large amount of money could have been given to the poor, and it was obligatory to remember the poor during the Passover. As Jesus sat at the table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with a very expensive jar of perfume, which she poured on his head. 
Jesus described this action by saying, She has done a beautiful thing to me. None of his disciples had done anything like that for him. In fact, they complained about the waste of money in that it could have been given to the poor. But Jesus meant more to her than all the people in the world. And so she expressed her love in the best way she could and anointed him in preparation for his burial. We should assume that she had a deeper understanding than many about what was going to happen to her Lord Jesus. Only hours remained to Jesus for the opportunity to minister directly. She chose the best thing she could do with her perfume. Jesus' reply to his disciples did not excuse them, or us, from looking after the poor. But what he said put our priorities into perspective. Jesus must come first in our lives above all else. He must be the centre of our affection as he was to the woman with the ointment. And even though Jesus is in heaven and not physically with us, we can still anoint him ourselves. We anoint him by by pouring out our love on him. Take a moment to feel her passion as she anointed her Lord. Now, we must anoint him ourselves with all the love we can. Although Mark does not give the woman's name, her deed is indeed remembered as the story of Jesus, is told throughout the world. Mark 14 verse 9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus said that the incident would be known throughout the world wherever the gospel is spread. Jesus here links the gospel to the reading of the word. How else would people know about this event unless they read about it in the Bible? How else would people understand the gospel message unless they look into the scriptures? It seems that this incident with the costly ointment was just the last straw to Judas. We know that it was Judas himself that offered the objection, as it says in John's gospel record. And we also know why. It is also possible that Judas could have belonged to this household, as scripture tells us that he is Simon's son several times in John's gospel record. If so, the person doing this act, Mary, could have been his sister, thus enraging him further, as this is the way that human emotions are. Mark 14 Verse 32. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Gethsemane, or in Aramaic, oil press, remains an olive grove to this day, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, 
It is called a garden in John 18. And Luke chapter 22, verse 39, indicates that it was a favorite place for Jesus and his disciples. It seems that Jesus left the disciples in this olive grove, in the care of the house of Israel, as it were, while he went outside that care to communicate with his father, acting as he was on behalf of all, not just Israel. Verses 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. We see the complete submission of Christ to his Father's will. Take this cup from me is immediately followed by, yet not what I will, but what you will. What a lesson for all of us. Our prayers are answered, but not always the way we want. It must be according to our Heavenly Father's will. We like to have a choice, but sometimes the very fact that we have a choice to make makes the choice very difficult. Jesus had a choice to make. His choice was between the will of his Father, which was that he should die for the sins of the world, or his own will, which was for the cup to be removed from him. Wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus if he had not known what hour his captors would take him? Wouldn't it have been easier for him if it just happened suddenly, and if he couldn't do anything about it? But God made sure he did know the time, and that he could do something about it. What would have happened if Jesus chose to pass up the opportunity of being the saviour of the world? Esther had a very similar choice to make, and I think the counsel of Mordecai would have been the same to Jesus as he had been with him. Esther 4 verse 14 reads, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther had been placed in her exalted position by God for her to put into effect the salvation of the Jews. However, she had chosen, she had to choose whether she wished to go along with it or not. Choosing to go along with it involved personal suffering for her, because there was a distinct possibility that she would be killed for her efforts. The point is that had she chosen not to be the saviour, God would have provided another. We need to bear this in mind when we think of the struggle of Jesus in Gethsemane. It was a very real ambiguing option for him to give up his struggle, to forego all the pain and suffering, and to allow God to provide another way to save his people. God would have provided another way, but he didn't want it another way. God's will was that it would be Jesus dying shamefully on a tree, and we all sometimes struggle to comprehend 
why salvation had to come this particular way. Naaman had a similar choice to make. Why should the prophet want him to bathe in a dirty stream? Why particularly seven times? Why did Adam have to abstain from the tree in the middle of the garden? Why did Cain and Abel have to sacrifice a lamb rather than vegetables? Why did Saul have to kill all the Amalekites completely, not sparing anything or anyone? But God had simply said he wanted it that way. He reprimanded Saul, saying through Samuel the prophet, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? We all have that choice to make too. And I'm sure we wish we wouldn't have to make it. There are specific times in our lives where we must consciously decide to take the road of difficulty because we know it is God's will, or to choose the easy path against his will. There is a whole list of examples in Hebrews 11 of those who had the same choice to make. The one that sums the whole thing up for me is is Moses. Hebrews 11 from verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. All these had to choose whether to stand and fight, and so do we. Coming back to our chapter in Mark, in verse 34, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This wording is very helpful because it makes the link between this struggle of Jesus in Gethsemane and Hebrews 12, which speaks of God disciplining his children. The link is in Hebrews 12 verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus resisted sin, even to his death and to bloodshed. But where did he do it? It was in the garden, where his sweat came like drops of blood falling to the ground. This struggle of Jesus was designed by God to perfect him. As it says in Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The brothers and sisters at Jerusalem has suffered much at the hands of their Jewish unbelieving fellows. The apostle exhorts them to consider Jesus in his afflictions and recognize that God disciplines his children as he did Jesus. Those who endure will be those who have Jesus' vision. 
verse 2 of Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Hebrews were reminded that despite the persecution that they were suffering, Jesus suffered more. Also, their experiences were part of God's discipline. They would only benefit afterwards if they reviewed how God was at work in their lives. When bad things happen to people of the world, we hear, why me? Or what have I done to deserve this? We should never say those things if we put our trust in the Lord. We might not understand the why or what of a situation, but that does not matter as long as we have a solid relationship with the Lord. We will face trials to test our faith, which should produce perseverance. We give our lives to God. We repent. We are baptized. We live as good a life as we can, and still nothing seems to work out right. We think that if we are truly God's people, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will help us through our problems. With God on our side, what difficulty could we have? Yet difficulties, problems, trials and bad things do happen to God's people, and it can be difficult to understand why. Why me? What have I done to deserve this? It may even try our faith to the limit. We may not understand why God is treating us this way all the time. But from this chapter, we can see at least one of the reasons he allows us to go through trials and have bad things happen to us. It is for discipline, so that we will improve and become purer for God. So let's not grow weary and lose heart, but endure the discipline that God gives us and become more pure, holy, righteous and peaceful people for him. Bringing our thoughts back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus seems distressed that the disciples were not able to stay awake whilst he was praying. Even though they had no idea what he was praying about or what was going to happen next. David looked for sympathy, but there was none and was distressed by this also. Psalm 69, uh, starting in verse 19, reads, You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Here is another psalm which speaks of the rejection and suffering of Jesus. It has its its historical basis in the days when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. David foreshadows Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Have we thought about how we can support our brothers and sisters in their tribulation, even if we do not fully understand their dilemma? It would seem that the simple presence of the disciples, or in David's case, his friends, would have provided some form of sustenance. 
Verse 53 of Mark 14. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. The ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, was made up of 71 of the richest, most powerful elite of society, and was led by the high priest. They were mainly Sadducees, although some prominent Pharisees were among them. The Gospels portray a formal trial. There was a search for witnesses, eyewitness testimony, Jesus being placed under oath, Jesus being allowed to defend himself, the high priest tearing his robe, and the concluding verdict by the Sanhedrin. This does not mean that it was a fair trial. The decision to put Jesus to death had already been made. Evidence was not sought to determine the truth, but to obtain a guilty verdict and death sentence. False witnesses giving false testimony misrepresented what Jesus said about the destruction and rebuilding of the temple. Because the false witnesses contradicted each other, their testimony was unacceptable. Reading from verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. The high priest tore his clothing at Jesus' response. This was a judicial act that indicated a guilty verdict and signified that that there was no need to find other witnesses. The rest of the Sanhedrin agreed that Jesus was guilty and deserved to die. Exactly what was blasphemous in Jesus' reply, I'm not sure. Jesus' identification of himself as the Son of Man, cannot have been considered blasphemous, for we have over 50 instances before Jesus' trial in which he used this title, and the charge of blasphemy was never raised then. Yet it was too much for the high priest and the Sanhedrin, when Jesus clearly claimed to be the Son of Man, coming in God's name to judge the world. Already convinced that Jesus should be put to death, the religious leaders now pronounce the predetermined guilty verdict. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were also members of the Sanhedrin. However, they must have proclaimed their faith in Jesus before this event, otherwise they would not have been counted in the unanimous decision of the council they would have given up great wealth and power to follow their master, and would have certainly been shunned, lost wealth and power, and would probably have been persecuted by the council. Their faith is recorded as they cared for the body of Jesus. The Last Supper Jesus had prearranged a place for eating the Passover and Last Supper with his disciples. 
Jesus' careful preparations for this meal emphasize its importance. The two disciples were to prepare the Passover meal, which included the lamb, which had to be slaughtered, skinned, cleaned, and roasted over an open fire, unleavened bread, a bowl of salt water, bitter herbs, and a bowl of fruit puree. Enough wine mixed with water was needed so that Jesus and the disciples could drink several cups. This room would have been the perfect place for such a gathering. It would have been relatively free from any disturbance, a place for discussion, fellowship, meditation, and prayer. It was furnished and ready for the feast. At the times, such as now, we share together when we take the bread and wine in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, we focus on the death of Christ and the price that was paid for our salvation. But in the midst of remembering the body and blood of the Lord, as shown in the bread and wine, there is a glimmer of hope. Mark 14, verses 22 to 25. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The hope that we see in this is the time when is the time the time is coming when we along with his disciples who were in the upper room with him will share wine in the kingdom of God. He was in the upper room with his most intimate friends and he will share the feast in the kingdom of God with his intimate friends too. So let's not just look back at the death of our Lord, but look forward with him to the great resurrection when we will all be together in fellowship with each other.